0: I have a question for you. What's your favorite Jesus movie? Now, The Passion of the Christ is a cinematic masterpiece and also induces trauma. And it's also only about the passion of the Christ. If you're a little bit older than me, remember from the early 1960s, it was the greatest story ever told and Our Lord was played by Max Van Saito. But what I have in mind and what I urge you to watch today, you can do it for free on YouTube is Franco Zeffirelli's movie, Jesus of Nazareth, because the way he depicts the raising of Lazarus is absolutely stunning. It's unforgettable. But before we get to the visuals, we have to go to the text, because almost certainly, at least in English, you've only read a very poor translation. Why do I say that? Well, various translations will say that Jesus was perturbed or our Lord was troubled or he was moved in his spirit. None of that does justice to St. John's Greek. The Greek word that John uses at face value talks about snorting like a horse. It talks. It suggests the idea that our Lord's guts were churning, that he was so disturbed, he was so upset, that he trembled and a groan was released from him, standing at the tomb of Lazarus. So here's a question for you. Why? Why was he so distressed? Why was he shaking to his guts, to the depth of his heart and soul. It wasn't performance anxiety, was it? He wasn't sh- it's not like he wasn't sure that our Father would give him the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why that distress that shook him in body and soul? It's because he knew... That death, that decay, that sin were bugs and not features. It wasn't supposed to be this way. There weren't supposed to be death and rotting bodies and heartache and tears of sorrow and loss. But our sin made a mess of our Father's good plan for creation. And our Lord loves us so much that He wants to undo the knots that we tie. Think of someone you love very deeply. You intensely want the best for that person. You want them to be well, to flourish, and above all, to be holy and godly. And you know they're not there yet. God's plans for them haven't been realized just yet. God's grace isn't bearing good fruit in them just yet. And in your waiting for that realization, for that perfection of God's offer to them to be realized in them, in that waiting, you are in anguish. Every good parent knows what I'm talking about. So it's in that sense that our Lord is in anguish because He wants all the horrible effects of sin to be gone. So understanding that, put yourself with Martha and Mary in the crowd. The stone is rolled away. There's only darkness facing our Lord. And our Lord cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And you can hear the voice of the Christ of God echo through the hills. And there's a wait, and a wait, and a wait. And then... Beyond all expectation, beyond any and every expectation, there at the very entrance to the tomb, on the borderland between life and death, on the borderland between light and darkness, on the very threshold of the Christ of God, there is a man wrapped in a shroud. And still, the voice of the Christ of God is ringing in your ears, Lazarus, come out! And you lean forward to hear Lazarus' response to Christ. You lean forward to hear the first words of a man who walked out of his tomb. And Lazarus says, no. No. Well, That's unexpected, isn't it? That's, that's not in the script. That shouldn't be. Lazarus is being called out of his own grave. He's asked to put aside the shroud, the symbol of his death and decay, and walk to the light, to walk to the Christ who redeemed him and raised him for the dead, and he says no. That's insane. It's certainly unexpected. here's my question for you. Should it be unexpected? I'm going to say no. Why do I say that? Don't we say no to Christ all the time? Haven't we heard him call us out of death, out of darkness, out of sin? And we said no? Every time we cut corners on prayer, we say no to the life-giving call of Christ. Every time we delay a sacramental confession, we say no to the life-giving summons of Christ. Every time we choose to worship God on our terms and not His, we say no to the life-giving summons of Christ. Every time we slide into church late, slide out of church early, and taking our children with us, thereby teaching our children the lie that we can ignore God safely. Every time we do that, we say no to the life-giving summon of Christ. Every time we applaud at the end of Mass as if we had been at a concert rather than a crucifixion, we say no to the life-giving summons of Christ. If we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, even for a moment, we know this to be true of ourselves. All of us, starting with me, Bob McTague from Newark, New Jersey, a nobody, a nothing, a sinner, for reasons I don't understand, decided to do something with me. I'm still dragging my feet, so pray for me. But all of us know that we are rebels. All of us have had the experience of standing on the threshold between life and death, light and darkness, sin and grace, and said, no, I'm fine, right here. I don't want to go all the way back into the tomb, but I don't want to go to you. Because I like the darkness more than I like you. I love my sin more than I love you. Christ. All of us have had that experience. Let us not lie to ourselves, not in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. So, what are we to do? That summons to life, that summons to walk into the light out of darkness, that summons to leave the death of sin behind and go to the Christ of God, that invitation is constant and it is not eternal. That invitation is cancelled at death. And we're all going to die. We may have the illusion that we're going to save the day with a deathbed confession and conversion. No. I've been at a lot of deathbeds. People tend to die as they live. And people who say no to Christ throughout their lives almost certainly say no to Christ at the end of their lives. So what shall we do? Well, I'm a Jesuit. I refer everything back to our founder, St. Ignatius Loyola. He's going to say we've got to start by reviewing the history of sin in our lives. And to do that, he says we need to pray for three powerful graces. We need to pray for shame, for sorrow, and confusion. Now, I don't know what your plans are for this Sunday, but please cancel them. I mean, if you don't have a history of sin in your life, just ignore me, and you can leave early, because you don't need God. But if you do have sin in your life, you need to spend today, and I do too, praying for the graces of sin, of, of sorrow and shame and confusion and response to the history of our sin. Not of the breaking of an occasional rule, not a oopsie, my bad, but the rejection of the Christ of God as spitting in His face when He offered to wash us clean in His own blood. That's me. I think that's you. I won't ask for a show of hands. Maybe you're all immaculately conceived, but I doubt it. Pray for sorrow, shame, and confusion. And then pray for light so that you can see and I can see that even now God is calling us, perhaps, perhaps for the very last time. Because no one knows the day nor the hour. So my prayer for all of us, for each of you and for me, is that we have a very sober and sorrowful Sunday, that we beg God for the gift of tears, that we realize that we are loved sinners and that the invitation of rescue is not forever. Pray for the grace to hear the Christ of God calling you out of your sin, your freely chosen, self-excused sin, your rationalized sin, your self-justified sin, just this once, just one more time, I deserve it. It's not so bad. Everyone is doing it. Let the Christ of God, let his voice summon you through all that noise and all that lines from the pit of hell and say, come forth. And hear that voice and please, God, for each of us and all of us and pray for me. Please. I'm a really stubborn sinner. Please, God, this day for once, we will choose well. May God's holy name be praised now and forever.